And then the triumphal march that the emperors and the generals took ended at the temple in the Jupiter temple in Rome. Mm -hmm. Well, Paul brings his discourse to a climax in 614 to 71. And guess what he's talking about? Yeah. A temple. Mm -hmm. You are the temple of the living God. Yeah. And whenever Paul talks about the living God, that is a direct dig against pagan gods, which are dead gods. Dr. Long, thank you so much, sir, for joining us on the podcast today. It is a treat to be able to welcome you to Faith in the Folds. Kevin, uh, thanks for inviting me. It's good to see you again. Uh, mm -hmm. We miss you around the Asbury campus, but we know that you're doing uh, good work down in Texas. Yeah, appreciate it. The very first night that we moved down here, so like we hadn't even gotten into our apartment. We were in the, um, we were in the hotel uh, that we stayed at before we moved in the following morning. And I was laying in bed at 1.30 in the morning, and I thought, man, you know, I forgot to lock my tailgate to the truck. There are cameras. I think it'll be okay. Got up the next morning, about 8.30, made it over to the truck, and somebody had taken out suitcases. Um, somebody had taken some, uh, uh, like, an, an external monitor that I had used, that I'd used on Asbury's campus, right, in my study carol. Oh, boy. And um, they stopped... <laughs> There was a box that was opened and nothing was missing because the very first books on top were Hebrew grammars. <laughs> and I realized then and there, obviously, we have moved to the right place because they are in need of the gospel down here in Corpus Christi, Texas. <laughs> mm. So it's wow, that was a very different from Wilmore. Yeah. But you mentioned the good work that we're doing down here in Texas, and uh, I hope that it is good work. And part of the series that we're doing on the New Testament is uh, it, it is part of this uh, part of this work that I'm trying to do here, uh, Doctor Long. Before we dig into Second Corinthians, help us kind of get to know you a little bit more. How long have you been teaching? Where are you teaching? Um, if, if, tell us some of your some of your interests and, uh, and and things like that. Help us get to know you a little bit before we dig sure. into all of this. Sure. Well, I, I teach uh, New Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary. And uh, I've been here since 2007. Prior to that, I taught at Bethel College in Indiana, mm -hmm. and which I think now is Bethel College University, I think is its name. I taught there for eight years, undergraduates and some graduate uh, students. So I was there for eight years. Uh, prior to that, um, I was getting my PhD at Marquette University. And prior to that, I was teaching Greek and Hebrew at Asbury, yeah. as well as finishing a master's in classical literature. And then uh, prior to that, I was uh, finishing a master's of divinity. So here at the seminary, uh, focusing on Greek exegesis. And uh, my undergraduate degree before that is in animal science. And I was thinking of doing genetic engineering. Uh, so I'm a kind of a science guy. I love science fiction. Yeah. But the Lord got a hold of me. I uh, had a very uh, dramatic uh, conversion and uh, started to have a sense of calling 
I absolutely loved God's word, fell in love with God's word, and uh, was in Bible studies, started memorizing scripture, and uh, just thought, you know, I want to study God's word. And so I switched from animal science to, I mean, from genetics and biology to animal science, thinking of missionary work. Then the Lord kept guiding me uh, to receive a seminary education. And uh, so uh, here I am. If I, if I weren't doing this kind of work, weren't teaching scripture, I would probably be a fisheries guy. If any of you see me on Facebook or whatever, I post a lot of pictures of catching fish. I really yeah. love fishing. I love streams, romp, romping around in the woods mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. Um, I like uh, taxonomy, you know, naming things, identifying things, birds, creatures, and fish. So those are some, some hobbies of mine. I also like... Um, science fiction, reading science fiction. Yeah. And uh, so I have five children and they, uh, the youngest one just moved out of the house. So I'm empty nesting. Oh, and so wow. that's uh, kind of a new phase of life for me. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of my kind of educational history a little bit. And uh, so. Well, if you like fishing and are ever interested in, in some Gulf Coast fishing. There are plenty of folks down here that I know who have, uh, who have boats who'd be happy to take you out in the Gulf. We oh, could uh, get out a few miles. Yeah. So I, mean, I would love that. Say I the word, right? Fishing and yeah. other kinds of fishing. Yeah. SBL is in uh, San Antonio. Are you, uh, are you planning to make it to SBL this year? I'm not. I'm oh, not. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Glosa House. I'm also a co-owner of a publishing company, Glosa House. And uh, we have been attending and bringing our books to these conferences. We had three booths lined up, but we are going to make we made an executive decision to not be at, at this SBL. There's just too much uncertainty sure. with things. And uh, so that's a little bit sad. So uh, but that's uh, that's something. So if people are interested to see about our company, Close House, you can find us online. I'll definitely I'll definitely put a link in the description and i'm making a note of that here i'll definitely put oh, a link thanks. in the description to uh to this um to to your faculty page to other things that i know you've done and to glosa house as well that way folks can uh, can be sure to check up on the things that you've done folks who are interested in uh, in digging more deeply into um all into all that yeah. glosa house has got, has got a lot of cool stuff stuff that's useful for uh, for pastors and educators and also uh also laypersons as well so yes yeah. yes yes I, I, I I've enjoyed the materials from Goza House that I that I've looked through yeah. and um, and and so uh, glad to hear that we're really growing and uh, our motto is uh, language resources for the global community yep. so we help people learn and retain and love uh, languages biblical languages especially but some other languages as well like Latin Amharic which is ancient Ethiopic we have some other readers that have uh, 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 French and German in them. But uh, yeah, we just published an Aramaic grammar, which is uh, part of the Old Testament is written in Aramaic, mm -hmm. a small little sliver. So uh, anyway, it's, it, it's, it's a real ministry. Uh, I, I love uh, working with authors to help them get published and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks for mentioning that, Dr. Long. I appreciate it. Okay, let's turn to 2 Corinthians. Um, let me ask this. Is it fair to say that 2 Corinthians is uh, is one of the more ignored letters from Paul? I, I feel like it, it is. is. Is that it a is. fair assessment? And can I ask why do you, I didn't prompt you for this question, but why do you think that is? 
Yeah, you said very, very straightforward. You're not going to throw any, uh, any difficult <laughs> questions or, you know, gotcha, here you are asking. No, uh, just teasing. Yeah, Second Corinthians is, is ignored. And I think in large part because its uh, structure is disputed um, in, okay. in critical scholarship. Uh, it's often assumed that Second Corinthians is a composite letter made up of different letter fragments anywhere from seven to two or three. Yeah. And then in a, in even conservative scholars, like some of the most conservative scholars, even they will say there seems to be two letters here. Okay. And then you can imagine that these little letter fragments, um, scholars reorganize when they think they were written. Mm. And I, there's a complexity then that accompanies studying and expositing second Corinthians. If you have any kind of scholarly kind of background, there's a complexity that I think uh, makes it, you know, maybe people avoid it. Yeah. Um, Can I hop now, in just for a second, just to get sure. an analogy for the audience. Uh, those of us who uh, may have listened to the earlier uh, episodes that I did with Michael Lacona, I think he and I mentioned this. Um, one way that so many people think the gospels were written um, is that, you know, Matthew and Luke had Mark's account on the one hand, and they had on the other hand, a separate source or collection of sayings. And eventually in their own ways, Matthew and Luke kind of molded these together. And one thing that a lot of scholars try to do is, uh, for better or worse, and with varying results depending on the scholar, they try to disentangle these different sources. Is it somewhat analogous to the situation with Second Corinthians where some of these scholars are trying to disentangle maybe these separate letter fragments from what we have exactly. in our Bibles today? Well, it gets it gets convoluted because you have to assume some of these letter fragments, but then once there's enough scholars who think that there are these letter fragments, then they're seeking to understand the mm -hmm. the the on the development of Paul responding to this little question, and, and so there, then there's a question of histor historical ordering yeah. of them. So you know, on the question of you know plausibility of this kind of theory it was not uncommon for authors to edit their, their letters yeah. uh, before they published them, maybe after they published them. So there, you know, there is some historical warrant that an author could have done this. I mean, I think Paul is responsible for collecting his own letters into the Pauline collection. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it is at least within the realm of possibility that he could have done this. Um, but on the other hand, um, what, what causes scholars to see these seams in the letter that would give rise to positing the theory of different letters being glued together um, is, is based partly on a faulty, I think, understanding of Mediterranean culture and, and the genre that is the type of writing that could readily account for sh sudden shifts in in the discourse yeah so um so people discern um seams in the text so for example in 2 12 paul talks about not having ease because he hadn't heard from titus and he was wondering where titus is so 2 12 and 13 there's this kind of sudden just paul's wondering where titus is 
Well, then in 7.4, it's like Paul picks up that concern and starts talking about Titus again. Right, yeah. And then there's kind of like this narrative material describing a little bit of Titus and his relationship with the Corinthians. And so scholars will say, aha, that is a seam. So Paul left the topic in 2.13, and we can say the letter continues in 7.4. So this intervening material is its own separate letter. However, in ancient discourse, you can, you can have what's called a distributed narrative material, material where the storyline continues. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, you, you kind of introduce something, kind of go side thing and come back to it. Like you can see these kinds of things in ancient discourse. So that in itself is not a sufficient reason to see a separate letter. In fact, you can discern a rhetorical strategy that Paul is employing, namely that Titus represents a point of reconciliation between Paul and the Corinthians. And so Paul is very carefully uh, including little narrative moments that Paul loves the Corinthians. He loves them so much and he's awaiting to hear back from Titus who went to go visit them. Mm -hmm. And so then when we come back to 7.4, he's ready to talk about what Titus reported to him. And this is all part of a, a deliberate strategy across the discourse. And then he really leans into Titus again in chapters eight and nine, because Titus becomes a link between Paul and the Corinthians, particularly Paul is trying to convince them to finish their contribution to the collection of money, this relief fund that he's wanting the Corinthians to participate with, that he wants to gather from his different churches in the Mediterranean world and then carry back at Pentecost. I think he's trying to get back to Pentecost and deliver the money to the, the, the needy believers in Jerusalem. So this is readily accounted for based on a rhetorical strategy, like a persuasive strategy, how to convince the Corinthians that he loves them, he cares for them, and Titus's role to help them be consistent to follow through with their promise. They had promised to contribute to it, and now he's applying pressure for Titus to, you know, as, a, as an intermediary uh, to show that Paul's concerned for them and to help them finish the collection. So that's one example of these seams yeah. that scholars want to really press into and, and divide the text, but really if you just have a little bit of empathy towards the text, you can readily account for why Paul includes what's called a distributive narrative section with Titus featured in it. Yeah. 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 And another example, quick, another example of where people see a seam, and this is a pretty serious one, is at chapter 10. Mm -hmm. So if you open up Second uh, Corinthians and you look at chapter 10, Paul um, is, is a bit angry. And if any of you watch hockey, I mean, down in Texas, I don't know how big your readership is, Kevin, but maybe you have some people who enjoy hockey. But basically, Paul is dropping his gloves right yeah. there. He's dropping his gloves and he's fighting. Yeah. And he's, he's, he's fighting against people who are intruding into his relationship with the Corinthians. These are some other missionary rivals of some kind. We don't even know who they are. Yeah, it calls them super apostles, right? Him. Yeah, he, he starts calling them names and he's saying, look, they're intruding on my territory. Like I reached you first. I love you. I'm your father. You know, like I have this great relationship with you. These people have wormed in between you and me 
And, and really he's fighting against these people and trying to push them out of the Corinthians relational space so that he can occupy it appropriately. As, so he's, he's saying, I love you, you know, like you're my people, but these people, man, they're, they're bad and I need to fight against them. And so scholars will say, wow, that is a very sudden change of tone. Here he's had this conciliatory tone, and then at 10-1, he drops his gloves. And, and what's the deal with that? Well, in a Mediterranean culture, this is an honor-shame culture, and uh, Paul would be losing honor if he didn't confront uh, opponents like this. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a very understandable move. Moreover, in the type of discourse that 2 Corinthians is, which uh, I argue is a defense speech. He's defending himself to the Corinthians. One section in a defense speech, when a litigant was defending their actions, their course of conduct, one section at the towards the end of the discourse was to accuse your opponents, yeah. was to go after your opponents, and it was called the refutation section. Yeah, and ten one through eleven six has the marks, the exact marks of a refutation where Paul goes after those accusing him and disrupting him in his relationship with the Corinthians. Mm -hmm. So again, I think it can be easily accounted for simply in terms of ancient types of literature. And 2 Corinthians is an apology of sorts, a defense speech. Paul says as much in 1219. So if you go to 1219, he says, you've been thinking, I'm almost quoting here, you have been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you. Yeah. Uh, we are speaking in the sight of God for your upbuilding. Mm -hmm. So there the word defending ourselves is using a technical term of a defense speech and it's right at the moment where he's self-reflecting back across the whole discourse, reflecting on its nature. And he's saying, you've been perceiving that we've been doing this. Mm -hmm. And he's pretty much saying, you're right. But we're speaking in the sight of God and we're speaking for your benefit, yeah. for your upbuilding. And so for, for me, this is a key moment in the discourse. This is called a meta comment. Uh, a meta comment is a type of statement that an author makes about uh, when he takes, when an author steps outside of the discourse to reflect yeah. on what they're speaking about and the nature of what they're speaking about. Uh, when they draw attention to the communication act to reflect on what they're doing, that's called a meta comment. And these mm -hmm. meta comments have a lot of interpretive uh, benefit. Uh, because they, they explain the epistemic stance, the interpretive stance, the viewpoint of the author is, is uh, communicated, and it, it helps us readers and audiences to understand what they're arguing and why they're arguing. And so in 1219, he really is taking a step back and looking at the whole discourse. So this, um, this genre of ancient defense speech is called an apologia. This is what I wrote my dissertation on my mm -hmm. my doctorate uh, was was dedicated to looking at Second Corinthians, and I studied Second Corinthians in light of the whole history of ancient rhetoric, uh, theory, and examples of speeches and some letters that are apologies, defense speeches. Mm -hmm. And so this goes back to Plato and Aristotle, and even before them. 
uh, Gorgias. So these are ancient rhetoricians and theorists and practitioners who then theorized about how to maximally convince people of your innocence. And uh, this could be a matter of life and death. So in, in ancient times, people had to defend themselves. You couldn't, you might, you might hire somebody to write your speech, but you had to present it. So there was a lot of, a lot at stake. You could lose your life, you could lose your property. You certainly could lose your reputation. And so um, there's a lot of energy put into writing and theorizing and describing the best ways that you can argue. And it's really quite technical. So the first half of my dissertation, I surveyed all the literature that spoke to this type of literature and looked at examples, many examples from um, uh, ancient uh, speakers like Demosthenes, Isocrates, Endocides, Isseus, Lysias. You got, there's all kinds of people, even Cicero and Quintilian, these are rhetoricians. So I studied this type of speech I came up with descriptors, like what are the benchmarks? What are the ways that you can recognize this type of speech when you see it? When you see something, how can you tell whether it's a defense speech or not? Like what are the common elements, right? For- yeah, what are the common elements? What are, you know, and I'm, I'm doing this scientifically, like I'm citing these ancient speeches as mm-hmm. examples. I'm citing these ancient handbooks. And by the way, this, this stuff makes for interesting reading. In fact, our oh, yeah. law system, and how our lawyers argue our jurisprudence system is based on this Greco-Roman tradition. Um, these people were insightful. I mean, you can read Aristotle about what motivates people and how you can convince them. I mean, it's it has tremendous value for us today. You'd be surprised at how sophisticated it is. So Aristotle was writing in the 300s BC and his understanding of human nature is quite profound. So um, these things were taught in schools. Paul was, um, was from Tarsus, which is a university town well known for its education. If he wasn't taught there, he, he says he was taught in Jerusalem. Well, Tru- Jerusalem had schools of rhetoric. He could have learned it there. Yeah. If he didn't learn it there, then he's running around the Mediterranean world and could easily learn this theory, like they're little handbooks that you could read in like a couple hours. Yeah. So you get an overview of some of this theory. So, so basically the first half of my dissertation was looking at this. Mm-hmm. And then the second half, I said, hey, let's look at second Corinthians and lo and behold, it matches perfect. I mean, like really well yeah. with the defense speech. And I don't think it's, I don't think it was a mystery to the Corinthians what Paul was doing in this letter. I think mm-hmm. it's a defense speech and these, these sudden terms, these little seams that people discern are all part of a strategy and fit well within the purpose of ancient rhetoric. And he is basically defending himself against accusations of inconsistency and being worldly. And then second Corinthians, he, he shows that he's aligned with God's word and is a part of God's purposes in the world. And then he says, and by the way, you have some problems too. And uh, one of the inconsistencies was that he didn't visit them when he said he would visit them. Yeah, yeah. And, and he says, well, look, I didn't come because I didn't want a painful visit. I didn't want to have to confront you. And it, 
And he says, and I'm warning you, I'm coming there. And there are some of you who are sinful and it's going to get ugly. Yeah. And so I didn't come when I said I would, but I am coming. It was actually for and their benefit that it's Paul for didn't their show benefit. up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I could go on and on about that, but, but the strongest defense, there's different ways that you can defend yourself. You can defend yourself saying, I never did it. You could deny, flat out deny it. And if you catch people doing stuff today, they'll oftentimes will just flat out deny it. Even though you catch them doing it, they'll deny it. But that's not the most honorable defense. Mm -hmm. Another type of defense would be to say, oh, there's been some legal misprocedure. Again, that's not very honorable. To say, oh, you know, there's a technicality. You weren't supposed to search this and you searched it or you asked me a question and I didn't have the right to answer you and, you know, whatever. People get out of stuff because of, improprieties of handling law and yeah. gathering of evidence. Yeah. The most honorable way to defend yourself is to say, you're right, I did it. But let's talk about my motivations. Mm. Let's talk about my intentions. Why did I do what I did? And if you look at 117, Paul uses the verb intention, two different verbs, but he uses it three times. <laughs> he is talking about his intentions. And this is the basis, part of the basis of his defense is that he was well-intended and his intentions are aligned with God's word and proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. Yeah. So to some, that, that was one of the best summaries of Second Corinthians I've ever heard. That was great. <laughs> I appreciate that. So to summarize, basically what you've been able to demonstrate is that by looking at ancient examples of how uh, the best ancient examples of how individuals defended themselves in, in, in sometimes legal settings, right? You know, yes. In, in legal settings, there arose, you, know, you just, you, you saw inductively and also based on remarks and recommendations in ancient, basically how-to guides Yes. How to defend yourself uh, yeah. uh, or how to make your persuasive speeches. You saw these common elements. And as you took these items and read through Second Corinthians, you realized, man, all this stuff tracks really well. Paul is defending himself and he's defending himself, defending himself against impropriety, against inconsistency, against worldliness and some other things. And so that to boil it all down, that is how we should read second corinthians have i missed anything no you you got it yeah and and this uh rhetorical training was ubiquitous in the ancient mm -hmm. world um in other words students could learn how to do this kind of thing it was demonstrated in public and um yeah and i think paul if he didn't directly learn this himself he could have easily have gotten it from friends around him. Although I think Paul is, Paul is very bookish. I think he learned these things and knew these kinds of things. In fact, Kevin, so I came up with these benchmarks of like things you should, that typically are found in these kind of defense speeches. Um, what I wasn't expecting to find and what I began to find were little idioms, little phrases that um, were a part of the tradition of defense. So when Paul says, you forced me to do this, this is a common line that orators 
defendants said, yeah. uh, you forced me to do this. I you know, and, and Paul says it, you forced me that I should be praised by you. So Demosthenes has similar kinds of statements. Mm -hmm. um, and then another thing, for example, is Paul uses the verb hope. And in 2 Corinthians, he uses it not of eschatological hope, like the hope of the future things, but he says, I hope in the end, when you read through what I'm writing, that you will understand me. So he uses this verb hope in a particular way in, in terms of knowing who he is. Well, when I saw that, and then I started searching these speeches, I found that that was an idiom as well that litigants at the beginning and ending of their speeches might make such thing, claims using the verb hope. Like, I'm hoping that you'll know who I am, you know? Mm. So you, I started to find these little confirmatory pieces of evidence, which, uh, which, you know, confirmed that he is in fact using forensic, judicial, apologetic idioms in the yeah. text. All right. I think that leads us pretty nicely into really the next question that I was gonna ask. What are some major themes? Obviously, it seems like kind of the overarching umbrella that we see here in 2 Corinthians is an apology in the classical sense, right? A, a defense. What are maybe some other, other major themes that we see running through here? Obviously, Paul's interest in fulfilling the, um, the offering from, yeah. the, from the Corinthians. Uh, if you want to dig into that and maybe, uh, maybe one or two more uh, I'll just kind of track some of these uh, lines that run through Second Corinthians. Yeah, um, very good. I can and, and feel you, free to pull up your text and, and dig into all this too. Yeah, if, I'm, if I, was, to. I was looking at some other things here. Um, some some themes just to remind me from different papers that I've published. Um, so important themes are that um, he's trying to he frames his discourse. So Second Corinthians is framed by God's comforting amidst suffering. And uh, he calls on the Corinthians to come alongside of his own suffering. Okay, so this is an important theme in 1 Corinthians and 2nd, and that is that um, suffering is a part of the Christian life, and, and that we shouldn't be embarrassed about it, and we may need to even face it ourselves. So uh, part of the Corinthians uh, the, the Corinthians struggled with being elites. They, 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 they struggled with fitting into their society and they were climbing the, the social ladder. They were kind of interested in this. Corinth was a Roman colony uh, founded again by Julius Caesar um, in like 46 BC. It, so, and there was a lot of, of pressure to ascend the social ladder. Yeah. So a lot of the issues that Paul is facing in 1 Corinthians 2 has to do with social status kinds of issues. And quite frankly, Paul, uh, a, a laborer with his hands and someone, you know, he's doing ma ma manual labor and someone who was being beaten and sometimes uh, punished was an embarrassment. Yeah. So he needs the Corinthians to understand that, guess what, our Messiah Jesus as you know, we want to call him Lord, and truly he is indeed Lord, but there is a great scandal at the heart of who Jesus is, and that is that he died a brutal death. The crucifixion was the worst form of death, uh, according to Roman uh, theory. Cicero describes that and others. We have a suffering Messiah that we proclaim is our Lord, 
And so there's a scandal of the cross that he has to keep trying to convey to the Corinthians. And so one theme throughout Corinthians is these hardships that Paul faces. Mm -hmm. We have lists in chapter four, we have lists in chapter six, and then he lists things in chapter 11. So this theme of suffering uh, as a part and parcel of the Christian life, and particularly Paul's life, is something that he needs to explain to them. Uh, so that's a really important theme. And he's saying, despite all the suffering, you really need to support me. And moreover, uh, continue the collection effort. So that's an important theme. Let me, let uh, me interject just for a second uh, along these lines regarding suffering. Um, I, I don't think we can overstress the importance of this theme in Paul's letters. I, yeah. I, I think you could also go to a letter like Philippians, mm. and, and which is also a Roman colony. And so yeah. I, I hadn't connected these two, uh, these two letters before, but it makes sense. Uh, Corinth, the city, right, had been there for a long time. It was a Greek city before Rome mm. sort of newly refound it. In, yeah, um, it was destroyed in like 146 or 7 BC. Mm -hmm. So there's a war with the Romans, then it was kind of decimated, but then it was refounded yeah. 100 years later by Julius Caesar as a colony of his. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like, yeah. as a Roman colony, it is, uh, it, it is instilled with these Roman values. Yes. And I don't know if it's a stretch to, I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that probably the preeminent value in Roman culture was honor. Yeah. Honor that manifested in all kinds of ways honor yeah. to the gods, honor to the paterfamilias, honor to you know, other, other representations of you know, power, or prestige, or things along those lines. And so again, Philippians. I guess, I guess you could take the suffering theme of 2 Corinthians, and if you want to know what Paul thinks about um, suffering, you could read, well, you could read all the chapters of 2 Corinthians, or you could read the four chapters of Philippians and kind of get a yeah. distillation of sort of what yeah. Paul thinks about this. We'll dig yeah. into this a little bit with Nijay Gupta, um, who actually, at the time of recording, I'm interviewing tomorrow, uh, which will be a lot of fun. We'll yeah, see what he has to say guy. about this. Yeah. But, yeah, that's um, good to connect. It, like, the two. Is, is that fair to kind of connect these ideas of oh, uh, yeah. suffering and honor? Yeah, there's a progression in Paul's letters too. So Philippians is going to be written after 2 Corinthians. And um, really, we need to see them in light of like the Thessalonian letters where Paul talks about second coming and kind of a distant light mm -hmm. and, and, and resurrection and being with the Lord is it's kind of in third person a little bit um looking forward to it but as far away but in second corinthians there's something happening where he talks about we're waiting you know chapter four and five you know and we're awaiting a temple we're going to be closed someday yeah. mm -hmm. and we're gonna you know there's this idea that it's a little bit closer to him a little bit closer and we can anticipate uh even though we have death now that we're going to have life and so he's, there's kind of a trajectory of thinking about afterlife, some kind of afterlife. In 1 Thessalonians, those who are dead are asleep in the Lord. And I think that's a euphemism, meaning he's kind of speaking well of death. Some people think that when we die, we are not aware of what is around us. But I think in, I don't think he's trying to describe that afterlife. But in 2 Corinthians, he begins to describe it more. And then in Philippians, he, he outright says, I don't know which is better. 
you know, to, if I stay here, I get to continue ministering to you. But if I die, he says, I'm going to go be with the Lord. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's interesting to see Kevin, how uh, there's a progression in his thought that he's willing to even conceive of and talk about afterlife kinds of issues. And I think, I think at, at issue for Paul is when we die, where do we go? Where do we go and who are we going to be with? Mm. And the an- simple answer is we're, we're going to be with the Lord. Like we are his body and we belong with him. Yeah. So I do think it's appropriate to connect the two. And I do think we see a little bit of development or at least clarity or willingness to talk about certain things that he didn't earlier in his ministry. So there's a little bit of progression in Paul's thought or, or um, motivation for him to talk about things more fully. I think that's encouraging just in and of itself as it's tempting for many folks. I, I know I, I, I don't ever remember being taught this, but I do remember mm-hmm. thinking in these terms that, well, after the Damascus road conversion, Paul, okay. Jesus just beamed everything he needed to know right into Paul and Paul was yeah. ready to go and boom, he cranked out all these letters over a course of you know his missionary activity. Yeah. Yeah. That, that seems to be wildly inappropriate yeah because paul had to learn yeah and in some pretty pretty serious uncomfortable ways i mean you know that i've done some work in act 16 that he's you know that's one place where paul really suffers yeah and then it's you know it's no surprise where paul a man who would have been stripped and beaten starts talking in second corinthians about how we have this earthly tent and we await a heavenly tent you know we, we, we long to be clothed yeah, with that heavenly tent, I, I I can't imagine that you know Paul isn't connecting some yeah. of these ideas. Yeah, that's a good point to connect it back to Acts, and and as you know so well, uh, his calling. The Lord says to him, "I'm going to show you how much you must suffer for my namesake." Yeah, I mean, my goodness. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's some I don't know the way that the Lord works with us. It's not that Paul had to work off his sins, right? And yeah. it included murdering people. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, like he's approving of Stephen's death. We don't know if he killed other people. Uh, Luke seems to be silent on that. But I think there's an implicature that, you know, he did some very bad things yeah. and was certainly at least complicit with people dying, probably was responsible for them dying. And Paul himself, you know, in the pastoral says, I'm the worst of all sinners. And I find it interesting that the Lord works with us. And is it important for Paul to kind of have a chance to like suffer, suffer for Christ, suffer for people because of how much suffering he caused people? Like, I think it's not like he's earning his salvation, but it's almost like the Lord gives him a chance to, to rectify things in a certain sense, you know? And so in our own lives, you know, what is the Lord going to call us to do? And how is that a part of working out our, our salvation with fear and trembling? You know, so yeah, he faced death. So to t- bring us back then to second Corinthians. Yeah. So you got one, one through seven is like this opening kind of benediction. Then in one eight, he says, for I, we do not want you to be ignorant. And now ignorant about what? About our afflictions. Okay, so there's this theme. And this, this uh, we do not want you to be ignorant. This is almost a direct quote of the Latin from the uh, rhetorician Quintilian, who says, 
this is how you can start your narration section, like verbatim, like in Latin, it's, it's, it's almost identical to the Greek, except obviously it's Greek. So this is a formulaic way to begin the narration. Now, we, we're at this point, we see that he's focused on his travel itinerary, his suffering, and then ultimately his travel itinerary and what he was hoping to accomplish. And then he says, you know, I hope that you can understand what we're writing to you. I want you to understand. And, and then in verse 13, he says, I hope that you will understand us perfectly at the end. Um, and then he says, with this confidence, I was intending to come to you and blah, 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 blah. So 115 through 16, he's talking about his travel planning. And then something happens at 117. I believe that 117 to, uh, to 24 is the outline of the, the, the rest of the discourse. And one of the themes that he draws attention to is that, and this is a, a theme of the book as well, uh, is that his gospel proclamation is faithful because God's word is faithful. So God is faithful and our word to you is also faithful. It's consistent. In verse 18, 118, he says, it's not yes and no. It's the same. We're consistent. And so he's arguing for this idea of consistency. So Paul is linking his faithfulness to God's faithfulness and to God's word. And so uh, this is an important theme of, of character and, uh, and alignment with God's purposes. And, and you know, this is a very important theme in the letter. Now, one way that this manifests itself, particularly is in 2.14 to 17. Now, these some people will see these verses as the thesis of the book. Mm -hmm. However, I would just simply understand it as, a, a, as an important theme that's already been developed. But here in 2.14, it begins by saying this way, but thanks be to God who leads us always in triumphal procession in Christ. So this is a major metaphor that Paul is engaged in. And that is that he is basically saying that his travel itineraries are aligning with what is called the triumphal procession, God's triumphal procession. Now, if most readers probably don't know what a triumphal procession is, every reader in the ancient world would have known what it is. Okay, so this is an issue of us needing to be aware of the culture. Yeah. Basically, by the time of Paul, there had been hundreds of triumphal processions celebrated by Roman generals, and then eventually the Roman emperors, they took this right over. So basically, when there was any kind of victory, there was a celebration of that victory in the form of a big march. It's like and a parade, this, right? It's, it's a huge parade. Yeah. It's a huge parade. And this parade was so important. It's depicted on statuary, reliefs, and on coins mm. and, and imitated in like local events, like little circuses. And whenever they had athletic competitions, there was like a little miniature uh, uh, triumphal parade. And so this is a type of religious procession in the ancient world and a very well-known one. Well, Paul basically draws a comparison saying, you know, there's a triumphal march that God is leading us in Christ. Therefore, I have to kind of go where he tells me to go. <laughs> Therefore, even though yeah. I promised yeah. to be there at a certain time, I have to follow where he's leading. 
but it's it's um it is challenging the prevalent political narrative of his day and that is is that rome is all powerful and so why is this relevant for corinth well the corinthians had just been awarded the right to hold the imperial games the provincial games at their location this just was awarded in 54 ad 54 what's happening in ad 54 as well nero just became the emperor Roman Corinth was minting coins, celebrating the imperial families, and worshiping, not only that, worshiping the imperial gods. These imperial gods are the emperor himself, deceased emperors, and family members. Yeah. Yeah. So Roman Corinth was very dedicated to the Roman emperors and their worldview. How significant is it that Paul says, you know what, there's an analogy to Roman triumph, and it's bigger and better. It's everywhere. It's always. It's every place. And he uses this to then move his discourse forward. Yeah. And so there's a lot of metaphors used to triumphal imagery, a lot of little, little idioms starting in 214, running to the end of chapter six. <laughs> so I've studied this and presented papers on it. Um, I found 39 or so different connection points to religious processions. So Paul is drawing on this kind of imagery, and he's basically saying there's an alternative triumphal march that's happening that I'm a part of and that you are in, affected by, and you need to align with God's uh, military triumph. Now, part of what happened in these triumphs was uh, people were either given mercy or not mercy. So in 4.1, Paul says, we've received mercy. There's also a judgment that's going to be rendered to people. Well, in five, chapter 5, he talks about all of us are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, so this was very prominent as well. And then the triumphal march that the emperors and the generals took uh, ended at the temple in the Jupiter temple in Rome. Mm -hmm. Well, Paul brings his discourse to a climax in 614 to 7-1. And guess what he's talking about? Yeah. A temple. Mm -hmm. You are the temple of the living God. Yeah. And whenever Paul talks about the living God, that is a direct dig against pagan gods, which are dead gods. Yeah. And so, um, Paul, yeah. Paul is showing his, uh, he's playing his Jewish card right there. Yeah, uh, he's referring playing his Jewish to the, card. There's, the living whole God. Studies, there's whole studies on this. Um, if you want to read some interesting literature, Jewish literature, read Bell and the Dragon. It's in the uh, Old Testament Pseudepigrapha about Daniel. Uh, those are clever little stories. I'll, uh, I'll put a link to the description. Um, there's a, you can get a free PDF from the New <laughs> English Translation of the Septuagint of Bell and the Dragon. Yeah. And uh, I actually it's a fun story, but it features this yeah. idea that these gods are not living gods. Mm -hmm. And so all is to say then is that Paul is subverting the messaging of Roman Corinth that I think they are attracted to. Um, so right before he talks about, you know, what do idols have in common with God? Uh, and you know, he, con he confronts them. Yeah. He calls the Corinthians out by that moniker. He calls them Corinthians. And we have to pay attention. So this is 611. 
He says, we've opened our mouths to you, Corinthians. Our hearts are wide open. Um, and by the way, he's imitating, um, when he's talking about open up and these kind of thing, he's imitating the herald that goes before the parade that was yelling to people, open up, spread out, open up. So this is, again, a part of the metaphor of this triumphal parade that Paul is a part of. And here he's the herald that's making way. And so he calls the Corinthians by Corinthians. That's not a good thing. In other words, there's a lot of civic pride associated with being Corinth, uh, related to Corinth. And uh, there's idolatry. So there's some idolatry associated with them uh, yeah. attaching themselves to Corinth. Mm -hmm. Now, Kevin, if you don't mind, there's one really interesting bit of research that I've done yeah. uh, on 4-4. Four, four. I, I wonder if you were going to dig into this. Yeah, because I, 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 I read through four. 2 Corinthians today in preparation for this, because I, I mentioned earlier, 2 Corinthians is kind of ignored. It's like, well, I don't know that I know 2 Corinthians as well. So should, should I read through it really quick? And when I read through this I can part, give I was you like, the oh, essay. I wonder if, if you want to give this. people, if you want to give people a link to this essay where I argue this out, um, mm -hmm. Uh, they may be able to read it and understand, you know, so it's not chapter four, verse four. Yeah, four, four. But Paul, um, it's important to see that in four, three, he talks about um, this gospel. Our gospel is veiled among those who are perishing. Now, among those who are perishing goes back to 215, where he talks about the triumphal parade is for some living and for those perishing. So, He's re-evoking the triumphal parade theme right in verse three. And then he says about these people who are perishing that among whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers in order that they would not see the illumination of the gospel of the glory of the Christ, mm -hmm. who is the image of God. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, I began looking at this figure, the God of this age. Now, one of my colleagues knows ancient literature really well, and in his little commentary, he says, uh, you know, most commentaries would say that God of this age is Satan. Uh, but my the colleague, Craig Keener. The footnotes in the NIV Life Application Study Bible, which is what I was reading today, yeah. said, it, it referred to it as Satan. So it's yeah, Satan. Th this notion but, is out there. Yeah. So, but Craig Keener, and I think he says it's Satan. So I think Craig Keener believes in Satan, but he says this, he says, Jews did not regularly think of Satan this way or describe him this way. Yeah. So then in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, Jews don't describe Satan this way. Um, what would the Corinthians have heard when Paul talked about the God of this age? And then I begin doing some research and I found that in the middle of, because when they think of gods, they would, they would be thinking of the pagan gods, but the big god that they're really kind of excited about is Augustus. Augustus, the deceased emperor who was deified. And he was deified while he was alive, called a god, the same word. But I found out that in the middle of the Corinthian forum was an eight-foot-tall statue of Augustus looking like the god Jupiter, holding a, a lightning uh, bolt. And there was the inscription is all that we have remaining. And it says to the God Augustus in Latin, to the God Augustus. So I argue that this is a reference to the God Augustus who blinds. And this idea of blinding, uh, I found in Philo, this Jewish philosopher, that 
political rivals could outshine each other in their glory and effectively blind people because they're so glorious. Mm -hmm. And uh, this God blinds people from seeing the true Lord, the true Lord who is in the true image of God, that is Jesus. And this word image is the same image that's on coins, yeah. which there's a lot of coins minted with the God Augustus on, on it. That's mm -hmm. an image when that, that, that uh, God Augustus. In fact, when Jesus is asked, should we pay taxes to Caesar? He says, show me a denarius. He says, whose image is on it? And, and what does the inscription say? And they said, Caesar's. He says, well, pay it to Caesar, then it's his. So that same word image is used here. Um, and I think the smoking gun for me, so I lay out all the evidence for this, mm -hmm. is that uh, it says this, this God of this age is blinding the minds of unbelievers in order that they would not see the illumination of the gospel. Now, you know, Kevin, there's a lot of different words for seeing, right? Mm -hmm. Bleppo and Adon, there's different words for seeing. The word used here, listen to this, this is the, it's an infinitive, avgase. That's the infinitive used, avgase. It sounds like avgustus. <laughs> it's, and I think that's, I think he's like, wink, wink. I can see that. Yeah. That's, yeah, a, yeah. that's a rare word in the New yeah, Testament. Yeah, it's rare. Very so it's rare really word in the New Testament. Words, see. And it just so happens to sound like Augustus. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. I, I, I know some folks will be on the fence about that. I, I, yeah. I, remember, I remember our mutual friend, Pavo. Uh, first, I think he first sent me that article years ago when I, when I first oh, started Pavo, yeah, Pavo at Asbury. Um, yeah. and, um, he, I, I read through it. I thought, man, this is, this is compelling. I'm, uh, I, I, I think it's an interesting thesis. Yeah, I really do. Yeah. 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 And I'm not saying you need to believe it, but the, the main thing I'm saying is that I think there's a lot of stuff hitting the fan in Corinth, mm. right. Mm. When he's writing. Like imperial stuff. There's a new emperor, new enthusiasm. Uh, there's all kinds of dedication. They're getting awarded with stuff. Yeah. And I think probably well, in fact, the 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 main archaeologist at Corinth, uh, what I forget his name, but he basically he says so this is almost a quote: the main issue facing the Corinthians is the imperial cult. Mm. It's so prevalent, and they're so committed to it. Yeah. So um talk about if, the stuff hitting the fan. I keep thinking that the scuba is hitting the fan and the, yeah, the scuba is hitting the fan here. It's <laughs> need to watch out. Yeah. Yeah. So these major so, themes, all, all these things are kind of coalescing, right? And, and yeah. So he's confronting the Corinthians with their idolatry. Mm. In other words, he's calling them into covenant faithfulness, right? Mm. He's calling them, he's like, I couldn't visit you. It would have been bad. And I need to explain some things about my suffering and about what God is doing in and through me. Yeah. It's hard work. We're involved in a struggle. Oh, by the way, chapters eight and nine, please follow through with your collection effort. Be consistent yourself. You're accusing uh, me of being consistent. Yeah. And then he, in chapter 10, he tackles his opponents and he gets really acerbic. And again, he draws on warfare imagery, on a siege imagery, uh, taking thought, taking captive every thought to Christ. He calls them out. And then he starts bragging about himself. And this is like, people, scholars talk about this as the foolish boast, but guess what? I found that ancient defendants, after they attacked their opponents, they refuted their opponents, I found a discrete section of a speech 
called uh, about self-praise, mm -hmm. uh, concerning yourself. And Paul uses the same idioms as they do. He uses the same topics. They're boasting about their ancestry. They're boasting about their accomplishments. They're boasting of their prodigious religious experiences. Mm -hmm. And that brings me to the favorite, my favorite passage of 2 Corinthians. All right, let's hear it. You wanted me to ask about I know yeah. we're almost out of time. That's all right. I'm, that I'm having a good time. 12, 1 through 10 mm -hmm. is like masterfully written. So here Paul is boasting about this person in third person who has these heavenly visions. Now, we don't know who this person is, but it's probably Paul. Do, do most people think it's like, do most I, I scholars think, so. think it's I think Paul? Most people see that, that Paul is speaking indirectly about himself, mimicking the, the practice of having other people come up to the stand to speak about a litigant, a defendant. So again, mm -hmm. the third person is mimicking the trial scene. Yeah. And I've so preached, I've preached sermons where I will, I know the person personally involved in the story, but I speak about him in as if I know them less well in order to yeah. protect their yeah. anonymity or yeah. because the situation is still close or something along those lines. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, preachers and, and, you know, pastoral, uh, you know, figures will will kind of understand what Paul is doing here, and, and without even having to be trained in, in ancient rhetoric. Yeah, you don't need to know that to kind of get a sense of that for mm -hmm. sure. And and ancient the use of ancient rhetoric, it's not supposed to be so obvious. Like you're supposed to kind of hide your art, and so people will sometimes say, "Well, how come he wasn't more explicit?" And I was like, "Yeah, he's pretty explicit, but again, you're not supposed to." You mean you Paul's know? three points didn't all start with the letter alpha? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. He wasn't being too obvious. Yeah. Yeah. But I love verses uh, 7 through 10. Um, in fact, it's at the bottom of verse uh, 9 is at the bottom of my emails. Um, yeah. So Paul says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, to keep me from exalting myself, in other words, to humble me, mm -hmm. there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Okay, so Paul has just been describing this person who has all these visions, and now he says about himself that he's been yeah. given this agent of yeah, Satan, a thorn like in the flesh. Yeah. It kind of looks like it's Paul. what this is exactly, but this yeah. idea of tormenting literally means to beat, mm. like to pummel and beat. And I think it really just has to do with his uh, afflictions, which he's been listing. But... Verse eight, he says, concerning this, I prayed to Lord three times that it, he would remove it from me. So a lot of times, you know, we, we think, you know, the Lord is obligated to answer our prayers in the way that we want. Paul is evidence that he does not. Yeah. He prayed three times. And rather than remove this suffering, this humiliation of Paul, rather Christ says to him, verse nine, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And really dwell means to tabernacle in me. Mm -hmm. And I'm just so, I mean, this, like we need to embrace this. I mean, and this is Paul's final defense to them. Yeah. Um, in verse 11, he begins to retract his arguments and he's reflective over the whole discourse. This is, this is the conclusion, like the formal conclusion, 12-11. So right before that conclusion, this is his final climactic defense 
This is the thing that he defends himself in the most. And it's basically that Christ speaks to him a direct oracle of affirmation. And it's a direct oracle of affirmation of his weaknesses, the very things that the Corinthians are embarrassed about mm -hmm. and criticize him about. Mm -hmm. It's like the linchpin argument against their uh, accusations and criticism of him. And it's the, one of the most profound truths. And that is, is that each of us, as much as we want to make ourselves strong and uh, present facades and, and be strong and in control and blah, 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 blah. In fact, a lot of that can be just an artifice and the Lord wants to break that down and needs to break it down because it's built off of a false foundation and he's going to break that down. And then at that point of confession and admission of weakness, that low point, he is going to give us grace mm -hmm. to build back up, but also just to lean into our weaknesses and our struggles. Yeah. And I, I think that's where we need to find ourselves, where we need to go. And that is precisely at those places of weakness that the Lord is going to show forth his glory through, through us. And so it's, I love this verse. I love the direct word that he receives and it. It's so encouraging to me, you know? And so he concludes 1210. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses and persecutions, difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Yeah. Mm. It's a paradox. It's a paradox. And Jesus spoke paradoxes to us. For example, if you want to save your life, you must lose it. The one who wants to be first among you must be least of all. The servant among you is the greatest. Jesus spoke paradoxes to address those issues of, of needed growth and a radical change of perspective. Paul here speaks this uh, paradox at, I think, a very critical point of formation for all of us. Uh, particularly for the Corinthians to build them up in their faith in Christ. Well, I, I better stop there, Kevin, unless you have any other questions. I, but you I was just going to say to wrap up. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say to wrap up. Paul is telling them there, it seems, that Christ the Lord himself does not hold these weaknesses and afflictions against me. Mm -hmm. In fact, he works most powerfully through these weaknesses yeah. and afflictions of mine. Yeah. Therefore, perhaps you should also not hold these weaknesses and afflictions against me. Against Maybe you should embrace your own and Christ yeah. will work powerfully through you. Kevin, that is very well summarized. May I quote you on that? Please do. Yeah. And we'll have this. Uh, <laughs> you can footnote, footnote me in the, my next in your, in your next publication. <laughs> Dr. Long, this has been a treat. I have really enjoyed this. I I think, uh, in addition to um, in addition to the the interview I did with Craig on on Acts, um, which will debut in weekly in canonical order. So his his will be a you know like uh, I said, I've got Rick Oster the week before you on First Corinthians, Six. and Rafael Rodriguez on Romans, and then Craig. So three weeks before yours, uh, y'all have been the most devotional, most overtly devotional. Uh, this is fun because I don't I don't normally get a get a lot of chance to hang out in Second Corinthians. I'm usually in chapter five, right? You know, anyone in yeah. Christ is a new creation. That seems to be yeah. a perennial favorite. But there's, as yeah. you've pointed out, 
there's so much more good stuff in second corinthians oh, yeah. it doesn't need to be daryl bach called the gospel of luke the orphan gospel because in his mind everybody ignores luke mm -hmm. um second corinthians doesn't need to be the orphan of paul's letters <laughs> yeah it shouldn't it shouldn't be there's so much there to chew on and uh and i think he's pressed you know, like sometimes really good stuff comes out when you're pressed, you know, and you get to see him really pressed to start explaining things. And boy, does he do that for us. It sounds like you have, uh, you've had some deadlines in the past that you've needed to meet and <laughs> I've cranked Definitely. out some, I've been, some I've research been paper. <laughs> yeah, I've been pressed. Well, thanks yeah. for having me on, Kevin. What a great sure. idea. Much success to you and just getting out the word. I mean, we just need to get the word out. We need yeah. people to really understand the word of God and, and then live it out, you know, to really let the spirit take these texts and, and, and work them through our minds and our hearts to transform us. I mean, one of, I mean, another great verse is like a 318, right? Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we're all looking at the Lord. We're being transformed into glory as we look at the Lord. And really, we just need to really keep gazing at the Lord and let him transform us. Amen. Yeah. Dr. Long, appreciate it, sir. Thank you for joining us today. Very welcome.